Yes, on to the interview. Austin Gonzalez is a member of DSA's National Political Committee and a member of DSA's International Committee. And in that latter role, he has been on two recent delegations to countries in South America. Last month, the International Committee was in Peru to observe presidential elections. And more recently, it was in Venezuela for the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples, something that got a lot of people online incredibly mad. We talked to Austin about these trips, also about some recent big news about the Western Hemisphere, including Wednesday's assassination of Haiti's U.S.-backed dictatorial president, Jovenel Moise, and CIA Director William Burns' recent trip to Brazil and Colombia. We started by asking Austin, what was the deal with the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples, and did the U.S. government give DSA any grief while going down there or heading home? The Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples was an event that was recently held in Caracas, Venezuela, right? Specifically, what this event was, was it was the celebration of the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Carabobo, which was a battle led by uh, the Venezuelan uh, uh, independence fighter, Simon Bolivar, Jose Antonio Paez, right, against the Spanish monarchy. And this was the battle that led to the independence of Venezuela, right? So because this is the 200th anniversary, the bicentennial of this event, uh, the Venezuelan government put on this massive uh, gathering, invited leftist organizations from across the world, not just from the United States. There were you know, delegates there from basically any sort of part of the world that you could possibly imagine. Um, once again, because of the due to the nature of this gathering, due to the nature of this, this massive event, right, the 200th anniversary of Venezuelan independence, uh, myself and everybody else in, in leadership within DSA thought it was important to accept this invitation to send a delegation down to the to the bicentenary, um, not only to network with uh, Venezuelans, but also to meet with the other delegations that were going to be there, which of which, goodness gracious, there were hundreds and hundreds of people at the event. Uh, there was Evo Morales was there, right? I I got to have a fun little moment with him in the lobby. That was hilarious. Um, yeah, we, we, we all saw the selfie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shameless. I had to do it. You, you gotta shoot your shot, King. Exactly. That's the there's a whole story behind that one. Um, but yeah, that was the that was the gist of the gathering, why we felt it was important to go. You know, I, I you know, I tell people all the time in the United States, you know, there was a time when celebrating Venezuelan independence was not exactly a controversial thing to do. In fact, it was welcomed by people in the United States at the time. So I don't understand anybody who would say, No, we shouldn't care about this event. Ah, well, this is something that has literally been honored throughout all of United States history, but that's a, a different point entirely, I suppose. Um, getting to the second part of your question as far as like difficulty he's dealing with like the u.s government or whatever so <laughs> funny enough like i had the, so our delegation was eight different people right from that flew in from the united states i had the honor of having my connecting flight back going through miami which of course is maybe a place where they're not going to be exactly happy to hear that you're coming from venezuela so <laughs> luckily luckily it was uh, it was all good like i think i don't know that i've ever had an interaction through u.s customs that wasn't kind of awkward this one was probably a little bit more awkward than most since i was coming from venezuela um but uh no i'm, I'm happy to say there was nothing crazy that that ended up happening i will say though Earlier in this week, you know, and I don't know, maybe this is tinfoil hat conspiracy theory brain or whatever, but earlier this week, uh, the DSA website uh, suffered a, a, a DDoS attack, right? And the website was actually down for a day. 
that doesn't happen very often. Now, once again, I'm not saying anything, but you know, I'm just saying, you know, it's uh, interesting to me that our website would be would be basically cyber attacked the week we sent a delegation to Venezuela. But what do I know? I I, I don't want to get myself too sidetracked here or down any other uh, tinfoil hat lane either. Um, but it is also curious, and there's a lot, of course, there's a lot else going on in Latin America right now. Uh, especially with respect to Peru and um, the political situation there. It was also uh, interesting that um, CIA Director William Burns uh, went down to Brazil to meet with the far-right Bolsonaro government. Interesting. Um, <laughs> interesting coincidence that this happens right around the time of of the uh, Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples. But like I said, there are... You know, other things are happening in in Latin America. It's it's obviously, uh, but it, I don't know. I I just felt like I I had to put my tinfoil hat on there a little bit. No, no, you're absolutely right. And we talked about that while we were in Venezuela because it, as you mentioned, it happened while we were in Venezuela. So in our minds, we were like, wow, what are the odds of us like coming down here? And now the CIA directors here, director is in South America literally a week later. I believe he also took a stop in uh, Colombia as well, which to meet with their boy uh, Duque or one of his government bureaucrats or whatever. And like it's. You know, you see, and I know we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but, you know, you see what's happening in Peru. You see how the people fought back against the coup in Bolivia to take things back. You know, you see how much of a concerted effort from the establishment it took to stop the left from taking back power in Ecuador. They're panicking. They're in it, and with respect to Colombia, I, uh, I've observed how certain um, certain people on the right in Colombia and in the U.S. have basically blamed recent unrest in Colombia on the Venezuelan and Cuban governments, as if, uh, you know, Colombia doesn't have its own issues that, that people there would want to bring up organically. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing the deflection from the Colombian government, right? Like, Colombia is a place where, you know, it's the most dangerous place in the world for trade unionists. And yet the social movements in Colombia are so powerful. This is a protest movement in Colombia that's been bubbling up for years now. Some might even say decades, right? But definitely years. There's been paro nacionales, right? General strikes for, for, for going back to 2019. So to see the Colombian government try to deflect this genuine populist anger and say, oh, this is manufactured by the Venezuelan government is hilarious. You'd honestly be hard pressed to even find anybody in the Colombian diaspora who isn't like a super rich white Colombian, right? You'd be hard pressed to find anybody in the Colombian diaspora who doesn't support the protests going on in Colombia, right? Because it's a, a genuine nationwide mass movement, right? They don't, they don't need those protests. Honestly, don't even need any support from the Venezuelan government, only because the Colombian government has done such a bad job that Duque is 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 historically unpopular. So, and to see, and and the point of Colombia is so critical because to see a, a movement like that against the right wing in Colombia, to see support beginning to coalesce around the left wing candidate Gustavo Petro ahead of the presidential elections next year, my God! Like, obviously, Lula winning in Brazil would be amazing and is critically important because of how important Brazil is. 
But if the United States and the right wing ever lost Colombia, to say that would be like a geopolitical earthquake would be an understatement, right? We call Colombia the Israel of Latin America, right? One of those places that <laughs> could be the 51st state with how much funding it receives from the U.S. government to, to attack leftists, right? So once again, they're they're in full panic mode. They're in full panic mode. Just look at Peru, right? Yeah. And also positive developments in Chile where they're uh, moving to rewrite the Pinochet-era constitution. Um, yes. I, I was curious, Austin, were any other groups uh, from the United States invited to the Bicentennial Congress in Venezuela? Is DSA the only group from the U.S. that, that accepted the invite? There were two other groups from the United States that were there for the time that we were there. PSL, right, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. That probably wouldn't surprise anybody. And another group known as the uh, International People's Assembly, which is a group that uh, kind of is like a coalition of a bunch of different activist groups within, uh, within the United States. Specifically, I remember off the top of my head, members from North Carolina, Raise Up for 15, were a part of that uh, delegation. Members from tenant union organizations in Los Angeles were a part of that delegation. Members of activist groups from New York City were a part of that delegation. This was, once again, just kind of like a coalition of the IPA, the International People's Assembly, was a coalition of different activist groups in the United States. But those three groups were the groups, at least that I interacted with and got to speak with that were uh, from the United States that were able to to attend the Congress. And what was what what was discussed at the Congress itself? Is there were there any sort of um, noteworthy discussions or resolutions, anything we should uh, look ahead to? Were any, the next dates, few years? were any dates set for the uh, revolution against capitalism, <laughs> the global revolt set? Uh. No, we, we saved that for our closed door meeting with Maduro. Um, but no, what actually happened, what actually happened at the Congress itself. Um, so there were a lot of things that were discussed, right? There was obviously there were like plenary discussions where like you'd have different people from various government people like Evo Morales, right? People were like Piedad Cordoba from Colombia, right? Talking to people, talking with everybody. Um, but we had different breakout groups, right? We had people, there were breakouts uh, by region, right? So each region would have a breakout to discuss things amongst themselves. Like, oh, how can we network more in North America? How can, you know, leftists and north america better support you know the rest of the world things like that at the end of the day people compiled different things that they discussed within their working groups to pass as like oh this is the the thing that we are adopting as you know the congress um that was kind of like the gist of the congress itself it, it, i'd say the primary purpose that the congress served was networking right meeting people from across the world meeting people not just in north america but in south america there were plenty of people from europe as well right funny enough i saw people that I had literally just seen in Peru like two weeks earlier, also in Venezuela from the party of the European left because they were at both events. Um, and uh, once again, that was the primary purpose of this event networking. In fact, uh, we were what was supposed to happen as well was like uh, like battle reenactments. Right. Uh, but it's the rainy season in Venezuela. So that didn't end up happening. <laughs> Too bad. That would have that. that... That would have been tight. I did get to meet, though, the uh, the main Simon Bolivar reenactor guy, who's quite an eccentric character, to say the least. It looks exactly like him. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I, you know, I, I feel a little silly uh, making the uh, tinfoil hat statement from uh, a few minutes ago, just thinking about why uh, Burns was in Brazil. Because when you mentioned Lula, obviously one of the reasons that uh, Bolsonaro probably wanted him down there is the fact that Lula is absolutely blowing away Bolsonaro in the polls uh, w w with uh, the, the the data showing that he will that Lula will probably win in one round of elections. Um, for those not aware, the Brazilian uh, presidential elective system is like the French 
where you have one round, and if no one gets an outright majority, they go to the the second round. And Lula is just blowing Bolsonaro's ass out of the water right now. So that that is probably the reason number one why uh, the, the current Brazilian government wanted the director of the CIA down there right now. And it only occurred to me <laughs> after we moved on from that conversation. And I'm sorry uh, to bring this up, but I, I just felt like I had to cover my own ass there. Going to be no, difficult it, to uh, call the election fraudulent when you lose by that much. It, <laughs> the it, right exactly. And, and and this is something and this is why something I've been saying on, on my podcast and to people for a while for like months now is that. You know, it's amazing to me that this that the right wing is even sticking with Bolsonaro, right? Because of how complete, how incredibly unpopular he is right now. I wouldn't have been surprised to see like a military coup against him or something like that, or just like Dilma, like a corruption scandal to take him down, just so somebody who's at least somewhat more palatable can run against Lula. Um, but I don't know. With Burns literally meeting with him, I guess they're gonna stick with Bolsonaro, and if they stick with Bolsonaro. I don't know what the hell they have planned, but it should terrify everybody. Not, once again, yeah, go on. Not, not, not to get all over the map here, but you're talking about a right-wing coup against Bolsonaro. Um, it's kind of looking like that's what just happened in Haiti against the, the current president, Jovenel Moise, who was just assassinated. Um, I saw someone on Twitter. I can't remember the handle right now. I apologize for not giving them credit, but just rest assured this is not my original thought. Um, someone on Twitter comparing uh, the assassination of Moise to, to, you know, again, early days, there's still information that's going to come out about this, but it looks a lot like, so far, it looks a lot like the um, assassination of Diem in South Vietnam in, in 1961, where you had a U.S. puppet who was increasingly unpopular and, uh, you know, was no longer useful to the U.S. empire, and and the same sort of pattern seems to be emerging in Haiti. Absolutely, and even to a certain extent, the example of Manuel Noriega in Panama, right? Now, granted, that was like a literal invasion, but once again, just a U.S. puppet who is no longer serving their purpose getting removed. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting myself sidetracked here, but it's, it's uh, you know... Um, we're just excited to have you on and to talk about all these issues. There's so much stuff uh, going on in the region right now, but I, I feel like I should uh, move the, the, the conversation back to the delegation to Venezuela. Um, it had a lot of right-wing detractors, unsurprisingly. You had uh, Republican Party Chair Ronna McDaniel. You had uh, Elliot Abrams, former Trump administration uh point man on foreign policy. Elliot I was just Abrams. reading the Elliot Abrams article just, just a second ago before this interview started. You must be doing something right to have him filling up his diaper this much. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I take pride in ruining Elliot Abrams' day. I think we should all be proud of that. Right. I mean, we're talking about a guy who, uh, even before helping impose sanctions on Venezuela that have, by some estimates, killed tens of thousands of people, uh, this man should have been an locked up in a cell for the rest of his life, uh, <laughs> assuming assuming that prisons uh, still exist or whatever. I mean, we still have the prisons. Um, if we do have prisons, Elliot Abrams uh, should be in one of them for all the, uh, the massacres he supported during Ronald Reagan's um, dirty wars in the 1980s in Central America. But in addition to all these 
uh, neocons um, and 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 right wing dipshits who you would expect this kind of criticism from. Yeah, those guys you can just tell to go eat shit. <laughs> yeah, those guys you can be like, you know, fuck off. Um, there are some people on the left who have been critical of the delegation claiming that you were enabling a dictator in Nicolas Maduro and talking to the Venezuelan government and not the people. Uh, what's your response to this sort of criticism? I would say a lot of things to this sort of criticism, right? The first thing that I would say is that we primarily met with Venezuelan people, right? The vast majority of our time spent down there was meeting with members of the communes in Venezuela, right? Actual working people struggling to survive under crippling sanctions, as you referenced, right? Actual people that recognize the the complexities of the government that they're living under, right? I don't know that we met a single average Venezuelan who just regurgitated state government lines like, oh, yes, we support Maduro unequivocally. No, every sing it was remarkable to me how every single person we met had a very nuanced opinion of their situation, right? They had a very nuanced opinion, and the opinion was that, hey, the government is far from perfect, right? But this is the government that is supporting the commune project, right? This is the government that is supporting us and actually giving us, attempting to give us resources despite the fact that the state is almost incapable of being able to provide anything right now, which is why it was so amazing to see, like, my conception of the communes before I went down to Venezuela, I only kind of knew of like the most famous ones, right? Like, for example, El Maisal, which, you know, makes a bunch of corn, right? Or the Pioneros, who are like squatters that like uh, build houses, right? What I didn't truly fully grasp until I actually met and talked with these average Venezuelan people, right, is how these communes, they do everything. They do literally everything. They clean their communities. They provide protection for their communities. They make their own food. They process their own food. They make their own clothes. Literally everything. And the biggest reason that they're forced to do this is because of the crippling U.S. sanctions, right? Because the state is incapable. In many places, it is incapable of being able to provide these sorts of services to their people. So once again, these communes to me, like I saw living, breathing socialism. And so it boggles my mind how anybody can look at that and say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we should be supporting these people. The government is too complicated. Let's just either avoid this issue entirely or let me, you know, pay atten more attention to this, I don't know, 30 person and reading group in Caracas somewhere, right? I think it's important to actually stand with the Venezuelan working class, which the majority of them continue to support the government, whether detractors like it or not. That's the fact of the matter, right? And I think it's important, once again, to network with these people and to learn from these people, right? To learn from the successes and the failures of the government, which leads me to my second point here, which is I would like to know what people would think would happen if Bernie got elected. You think he just clicks the socialism button and we're all good now? No, there'd be struggle, right? There'd be massive struggle, right? I think people are incredibly naive if they think there wouldn't be a, a capital strike, right? If they don't think there'd be massive forces working against even, you know, the quote-unquote social democracy that Bernie was, you know, was trying to introduce, right? Which is why I think it's doubly important to look at a case like Venezuela and see, well, what has gone wrong, right? What is, what are the difficulties of an actual leftist movement attempting to come into government and, and attempting to, truly embrace a, a democratic socialist model, right? An, an electoral road to socialism, so to speak, right? For anybody who believes in an electoral road to socialism, I think this is the first place you should be looking to for lessons, right? I think talking to the actual average day, average everyday Venezuelans who once again continue to struggle to put food on their table because of crippling sanctions, I think those are the first people you should be talking to, right? So once again, I, I don't understand this sort of criticism that once again, to me, just it appears as people who are looking at this issue as 
says, this is too complicated. I'm not going to attempt to actually deal with anything that might be messy and might actually admit that, you know, socialism and revolution might be a little bit difficult at times. Right. So I'm going to wash my hands clean of this and just avoid the subject entirely. Um, that that's what I would say to those criticisms. And I think your points are even more important considering how Venezuela is such a target of U.S. imperialism. And I remember having these debates with people on online in 2019, like as the U.S. is attempting to overthrow the Maduro government, you see people on the left who should know better trying to add kind of like, well, yeah, Maduro is bad. So, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so vocal in defending this government. You see, that's a critically important point as well, right? There's an added layer of us being leftists or socialists in the United States, right? I think that gives us a duty <laughs> to both begin and end our conversation with Venezuela on we have to stop the sanctions. We have to stop the sanctions. We have to end the sanctions. If your commentary on Venezuela is, yeah, let's end the sanctions, but we should also say that Maduro is a dictator and this government is evil, well, then you've lost me entirely. And you're only contributing to a narrative that that is very similar or not too dissimilar to the narrative that led up to the Iraq war. Now, obviously, apples and oranges and Saddam was a motherfucker, right? Am I allowed to say that? Um, but <laughs> yeah, you are. I mean, okay. you, I mean, you're allowed to say I mean, you're allowed to say motherfucker. I'm not sure about the ideology behind your statement. There. <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. I, I haven't brushed up on my bath party history in a while, but I do feel like I heard it his was, son sucked. But uh... it was it was a it was a uh, uh, an anti-communist project from its inception. I mean, that's why the U.S. supported Saddam initially is is yeah. is because it was an an anti-communist uh well, it's, I mean, it sounded like, Austin, when you were relaying what people in Venezuela were telling you, that they are fully aware of the effect of U.S. sanctions and want the sanctions lifted. So when you hear people in the United States say, oh, well, you should listen to the Venezuelan people. OK, lift the sanctions. Yes, exactly. And like, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, and I saw plenty of, of memes online about this, something to the effect of like, Right wingers say, oh, go to Venezuela. Well, guess what? We went to Venezuela. And their response is, no, 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 no not like that. Not like that. <laughs> right? Hey, we went to Venezuela. I listened to average Venezuelan people who are struggling, right? Who are, in many cases, struggling to put food on their tables, right? And what did they say? They said, stop the sanctions, right? And what else did they say? They said, yes, we recognize the complexities and difficulties of our government, right? Like I say, I don't think I met a single person. <laughs> who was just uncritically supportive of their government, right? What was so remarkable to me, once again, was just the level of nuance, the level of political consciousness just among the average Venezuelan, right? And it's a, a it was a stark contrast to what I saw in Peru as well, which like, uh, for example, the, the first uh, political billboard that I saw when I landed in Peru was five days to vote no to communism, right? You want to know what was the first billboard I saw when I landed in Caracas? Arriba la izquierda, right? Onward with the left. So like, once again, a complete, complete contrast in like political consciousnesses that was an interesting dichotomy to witness up front. I, I am a little curious though, uh, you know, one sort of gets bits and pieces of criticism in reading um, uh, a source that I think is valuable to a lot of English-speaking uh, leftists, which is Venezuela analysis. Um, they report on things from Venezuela uh, uh, critically, but also 
you know, recognizing the geopolitical reality of the situation, um, they they do talk uh, about uh, certain corrupt elements within the government. And I was just curious as to sort of what what sort of criticism did you hear from people in the communes, uh, bearing in mind, of course, that uh, U.S. imperialism has to go? Absolutely. No, you make a great uh, you raised a great point there. Right. As far as Venezuela analysis is coverage. Right. Shout out Venezuela analysis. There are issues with the bureaucracy. Right. There's something I like to say is that this is a government. Right. I don't understand anybody who either like, quote unquote, stands a government. Right. Or uniquely vilifies a government. Right. A government's going to do fucked up shit because it's a government. Right. Because there are bureaucrats. There are. This is a it, what was amazing was you the average Venezuelan knew that Venezuela is still a capitalist society, right? That this is a capitalist society attempting tra to transition to a socialist society, so to speak, right? And so a lot of those elements that are holdovers from like 400 years of, of colonization, 400 years of capitalism or, or whatever you would want to call it, right? A lot of those things are still deeply uh, deep inside of Venezuelan society. And that those things manifest themselves within issues with the bureaucracy. And yes, we would talk to members of the communes who would describe those sorts of things. And here's an example that I would use, right? As I described, a lot of these communes basically do everything, right? In many ways, they're essentially taking on the role of the state because the state has as as incapable of providing these sorts of services. What'll often happen is these communes will get to a place where once again, they basically are the state. And if you have a local bureaucrat who's worried about his power base, that is where you'll often see conflict, right? Where the communes are taking power into their own hands. But what do these communes say when things like that happen? Do they say down with Pesuve? No, that's not what they say. What they say is Pesuve and Maduro are the ones that are supporting this project. It's these ineffectual bureaucrats who need to be taken care of. And even and you can even hear Maduro himself use this sort of rhetoric. Chavez, in his famous uh, Golpe de Timon speech, right, strike at the helm, his, his final speech was in front of a bunch of ineffectual bureaucrats who were mess who were not uh, who were not following the actual uh, the actual commune system that was being developed. So it's important. It's, that's an important point to uh, to make because I think this is another one of those important lessons for us to take, right? Which is, if we were to ever have a socialist movement or leftist movement take power in the United States, do you think all of a sudden police forces across the country are going to be, oh, they're socialist cops now? No, they're going to kill. They're going to keep killing black people, right? Does that therefore mean it's the pro it's it is the fault of the socialist government? No, this is endemic within our society because this is a process. This is a it, it, this is a process that we need to take, right? And we need to recognize that this is difficult and this is messy. And the communes definitely definitely recognize that as well. And it was amazing to to see firsthand. Um, I, I, did you want to get into talk about Peru a bit, Sam? Uh, or, yeah. I <clears throat> before we I was... before we moved on from Venezuela, I did want to ask one thing uh, that I am curious about and something that, um, you know, hopefully could get clipped by uh, neocons and they can get mad about my question. Um, did you get a chance to meet Maduro and how tall is he? Because he looks like a unit on TV. <laughs> okay. Uh, did I get the chance to meet Maduro? Yes, I got the chance to meet Maduro. We bumped fists. It was a wonderful, beautiful moment. Um, so here's... So here, so here's what's funny. Um, so I'm, I am not a tall guy at all. I'm about five seven, right? This guy Maduro is, oh goodness, at least like six four or something. I don't know. Pretty well, tall. Among, yes, he's a big guy. He is indeed a unit. Uh, a moment that I will never forget um, is that uh, probably I think the largest fellow 
on our delegation, who's about like the same size as Maduro, former like football lineman or whatever. As soon as he walks up to Maduro, Maduro squares up and gives him a shoulder tackle. <laughs> and our delegate. That's how big people interact. Kind. Exactly. Uh, yeah, if he did that to me, I'd have, ooh, I would have fallen backwards. So, like, and our delegate responds in kind. And literally, as soon as we walk in the room, they've just shoulder tackled each other three times in a row, and everybody's just laughing their asses off. So, that's. <laughs> he's a humble man, a sweet man, dare I say. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, let, let, let's move on to Peru. I. Uh, I was wondering if you could bring us up to speed. I think that a, a lot of things have happened um, since you uh, went there with the delegation to observe the election um, or to do what observation you could because it sounds like the Peruvian government tried to shut you out, and we can get into that in a second. But I, I think it's, you know, we shouldn't bury the lead here. Um what is sort of going on right now? Keiko Fujimori is basically trying to uh, do a Donald Trump January 6th uh, kind of thing and claim that, you know, there was all this fraud and, uh, you know, we need to take back the power with strength and you're not going to have a country anymore. Um, so <laughs> what, wh where does the situation stand right now? And how likely do you think it is that that Fujimori will pull this off and steal the election from Pedro Castillo? So it's amazing. It's been, gosh, what is today? It's yeah, it's been over a month since that election. It's been about a month since full vote totals were counted. And still, the JNE, the National Jury of Elections, has not certified Pedro Castillo as president, which is remarkable, right? Right now, as you described, Keiko Fujimori is, is attempting to claim that there was systemic fraud, right? And that the small vote margin that Castillo won is illegitimate because, oh, there's hundreds of thousands of ballots that were you know, were marked inaccurately or were, there was ballot stuffing or whatever, which, of course, I say I'm not sure how that would happen when the ruling government of Peru is right wing. And I'm not sure why they would try and uh, try and rig it in the left's favor. But whatever. I, logic does not matter to them, I suppose. Um, but you're right. This is essentially Keiko Fujimori attempting to do some sort of stop the steal bullshit. This is Keiko Fujimori attempting to stay out of prison since she's absolutely going to prison if Pedro Castillo gets inaugurated. And once again, it's a shame that I have to phrase it like that, if Pedro Castillo gets inaugurated. Um, in my personal opinion, I think, you know, it's amazing. As soon as our delegation left Peru, our friends that we met and networked with in Peru, they immediately started raising alarm bells. They meet every single one to a T started saying to us, hey, we're really concerned about this. Keiko's not conceding. She's trying to throw out ballots. We're worried that people are, that she's going to have like the establishments behind her. Like, for example, the liberal author, Mario Vargas Llosa, right, was for his, still firmly behind Keiko, which is amazing, right? Liberals siding with fascists to stop the left. And, you know, that's a tale as old as time, right? So like, once again, Despite all that, you know, I remember initially <laughs> the Peruvian Navy actually put out a statement right after the election saying, no, we're not going to intervene. Anybody who's telling us to intervene needs to stop. Right. Right after the. Uh, right who was yeah, telling them? <laughs> yeah. Right after the election, even the OAS, even the OAS put out a statement saying, no, these elections were clean. Sorry. So. Oh, it's amazing that Keiko Fujimori, despite all that, despite the biggest allies she would presumably have for a coup, essentially abandoning her, is still pushing forward. And it's amazing that because of partisans on the National Jury of Elections, who also gave us bullshit, as you mentioned, um, are still refusing to certify him. So, I, you know, I, I, I want to be optimistic, 
and say that because the State Department and the OAS and sectors of the Peruvian military have said they're not going to intervene, that there's almost nothing that Keiko can do. But it's tough. It's tough, especially when I'm get once again continuing to get alarm bells from our friends on the ground saying, "No, this is an evolving situation. This is something that people need to be aware of," and they're going, they're trying to stop Castillo from taking the presidency. And I also have to believe that this is a big reason that Burns came down to South America. Yeah, yeah like like a true leftist one in Peru. Like, let's just think about that for a second. The, the Lima Group, right? The right wing Latin American Alliance. It's called the Lima Group. It's capitaled in Peru. Right. And what and this isn't just like this wasn't just a flash in the pan victory. This was a guy who got elected on a mandate to shred the Fujimori Constitution. That's if that's not like a political revolution, I'm not sure what is. Now, now uh, I, I guess we uh, uh, in case we have any listeners who know little to nothing about Peru, when you say the Fujimori Constitution, of course, you're referring to Keiko Fujimori's father, who was the longtime uh, dictator, basically, of Peru, uh, Al- Alberto Fujimori, I think. Is, is, is it Alberto, correct? Um, and, and the Constitution was written under uh, his rule, um, not unlike the Chilean Pinochet-era Constitution um, that Sam referred to earlier. Exactly. So, like, I mean, th- th- those were the three, like... The classic three right-wing countries in South America, Chile, Peru, Colombia, two of them, one of them is literally already shredding their right-wing constitution as we speak. The other one is pretty damn close to doing the same. And with a nationwide protest movement happening in Colombia as well, this is why I go back to the the CIA, right? They're in full panic mode, right? This is a disaster. And this is why, you know, I, I remember a couple years ago when things were at like their lowest for the left in Latin America and people would uh, dance on the grave of the pink tide and write obituaries. You know, I used to always say people people are so naive. They look at the the disappearance of, you know, certain figureheads and think, oh, ha ha, ha ha, the left's dead now. But here's the thing. These figureheads are backed by mass social movements, right? You look at the example, I, the best example is Bolivia, 2019, right? Yeah, you can try and coup Evo Morales. Does that mean all the people that struggled with him have suddenly forgot the last 10 years? No, they're still there, right? Even if there was a, a coup, here's the thing, if there ever was a coup or, or God forbid an invasion in Venezuela to remove Maduro, people are super naive if they think, oh yeah, we just got rid of Maduro, we're good. Mm, no, those communes are ready and prepared to fight. Millions of people in Venezuela are ready and prepared to fight. If they don't think a, a conflict the likes of which this region has never seen would not erupt, they are extremely naive. And now you got you got the same thing in Peru, right? Even if Pedro Castillo was somehow prevented from taking office, he has such a, a strong, firm base in the rural communities, in the indigenous communities. They will descend on Lima. And people are extremely naive if they think that's not going to happen. So once again... As long as these leftist movements are backed by strong social movements, by strong trade union movements, you can do whatever you want to try and sabotage these figureheads. It's not going to change anything. And, and sorry, and last. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Finish. No, please finish. 
no, you're good. Last point here. This is one of the biggest lessons I would take to the left in the United States, right? I think many, I think very often people can get a cart before the horse mentality when it comes to some sort of leftist movement in the United States. We need to build up strong social movements, right? We need to build up a strong union movement if we ever can expect to have some sort of, uh, you know, party or movement that can be held properly uh, accountable by the peoples like they have been in places like South America. I, you know, it's it's funny because I feel like I, well, I don't feel like I have seen some sneering from uh, certain people on the left about the election results in Peru. Um, you know, I I don't want to put words in the mouth, but the the um, the subtext or the implications of what they're saying is that oh, look at Castillo, he's already um, trying to do reformist stuff and. Um, you know, the, the it's just going to be a kind of like uh, social democracy, and and the left shouldn't abandon, um, you know, insurrectionary tactics, um, as if Peru hasn't just sort of like <laughs> come out of a long uh, uh, struggle where that was attempted by the Shining Path, and it didn't turn out so well. And 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 not only that, we're also like as you were describing, we're approaching this situation where, if the right in Peru does try to um, block the left from taking power, then you are basically building up. These are like the prerequisites for an insurrectionary struggle, uh, because people are saying that the uh, the system will only take them so far. I was wondering if you could uh, comment on that. Absolutely. So there's a couple of things that I would say to that, right? So Pedro Castillo's party, Peru Libre, is a Marxist-Leninist party, right? Now, to be clear, Peru Libre was also a regional party in Peru for a while. Um, so they really didn't have truly a national base until this election. DSA, for example, was not backing Peru Libre in the first round. We had support for Nuevo Peru, which is like a historical ally of DSA. Good people, right? We met with them too. Nuevo Peru, I think this is a critical point as well. Nuevo Peru, after the first round, declared support for Peru Libre, right? And they've been working together. Um, as far as the kind of like the moderation of Pedro Castillo's, you know, positions or views or whatever, I would say this happened in all directions. And why? Because he's running for president, right? Uh, a lot was made as well about Pedro Castillo's like machista views or, oh, this guy's a homophobe, right? After the first round, those views, he also moderated going into the second round, right? Making a deal with Nuevo Peru to, you know, respect feminist rights, respect LGBTQ plus rights. In fact, it's funny, any feminist groups we met in Peru, any members we met in Peru of the gay community, they were all supporting Castillo, right? Out of both candidates, right, Castillo and Fujimori, only one of them actually met with members of the gay community, and it wasn't Fujimori, right? So I think that's also an important thing to point out as well. I think a critical point to make about Pedro Castillo, and maybe this is just my opinion, I did also get to meet Pedro Castillo. I don't know if I mentioned that as well. Interesting guy. Very, very humble man. He talks like a teacher. But anyways. Doesn't tower over you like a... How tall is he? <laughs> Like a Champions League center back. I was about to say, I am, like I said, I am 5'7", right? Pedro Castillo is shorter than me. I think he was maybe like 5'5". Five five. He's a short king. He's like Maradona. There you go. He's an inspiration to short kings everywhere. Um, but I think a critical point to make about Pedro Castillo is that 
I don't know that this is a man motivated by ideology, so to speak, right? I don't know that this is a man who would consider himself, you know, or who would put himself in any sort of ideological box, right? And I think I've seen a lot of people try to do that both on the left and the right, right? I think this is a man who is truly an organic reflection of what the people want, right? This is a man who truly lives up to his campaign slogan, right? Which was, no mas pobres en un país rico, right? No more poverty in a rich country. I think this is a guy who came out of the teachers union movement who wanted to teach kids and is wondering, hey, why the hell is Peru so goddamn resource rich? And yet there's so many goddamn poor people around here, right? I think that is his true motivation, which is why I say the number one thing is that Pedro Castillo has stayed true to his demand to write a new constitution. To me, that's key, right? That is critical. Write, write a new constitution, put it back in the hands of Peruvians. We shouldn't forget as well, this was how, this is the, the Hugo Chavez model, dare I say, right? He ran in 1998, right, or 1999, I might be getting my years mixed up, as somebody who wasn't particularly motivated, motivated by ideology, as somebody who wasn't particularly like a far leftist, right? He ran as somebody who was an organic reflection of the anger within the Venezuelan population, and his number one demand was, let's write a new constitution, right? Let's write a new constitution, which is why I think it's critically important for the international left to be embracing Pedro Castillo rather than trying to isolate him, right? We should be embracing this person who is a reflection of the general of the actual will of the Peruvian people, right? Because you know who's not going to embrace him and who is going to isolate him? The State Department, right? And when that happens, it's going to be critically important for us to support the Peruvian people because what Pedro Castillo has managed to build is a genuine mass movement, right? That's what I saw in Peru. I saw a genuine mass movement of the indigenous peoples, of the rural communities, right? So any, once again, any attempts to try and prevent Pedro Castillo from taking office will result in in very bad things right that we should very much very much oppose for the sake of our our peruvian friends down there well austin i gotta say there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of negativity going on in the world but when one looks at what's happening in in latin america particularly in south america it does give dare i say a glimmer of hope and uh, you know, I might have to brush up on my Duolingo Spanish to uh, to prepare for uh, asking my wife to uh, move down there. With you know, get get getting ready to w when a, next time a right winger says move to Venezuela, I'll say I'm working on it, pal. Just just take pleasure in knowing that right now at Langley, there are memos being flown around feverishly talking about how they're losing South America. Oh yeah. So uh, any any final thoughts you have here? Anything you want to plug? I know that you are one of three co-hosts of a great podcast called uh, Machete y Mate. It's Machete y Mate. I, I don't know if I'm mispronouncing it right. Either way, our audience would recognize Machete uh, probably, uh, but Machete y Mate yeah sure so definitely i do a, a po i do a podcast called machete mate right uh machete. <laughs> good enough um and uh we so we you know we cover politics from we, we cover latin american politics from like a, a left-wing perspective our our big thing is you know how uh because of the language barrier so many things can get lost in translation right we want to try and like demystify those sorts of things for an english-speaking audience at least that's our goal um uh, uh for all the DSA nerds out there, I am running for a re-election within DSA, so anybody going to the convention, obviously vote for Austin G. Uh, I guess that's also something I'll plug. Um, and yeah, those are kind of like the the two main things I would say. Listen to my podcast, tell your DSA friends to support me within DSA. So there you go. 
Austin Gonzalez is a member of the DSA National Political Committee and also a member of the International Committee. He is a one of the co-founders of Richmond DSA, and you can find him on Twitter at Gaius underscore Gracchus underscore, also a Roman history nerd. Uh, Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you both so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Austin.